All right, welcome everybody to Rationalism versus Mysticism, episode nine. And we're really in the thick of Kabbalah at this point. We're going to be discussing this class is going to be dedicated to the Sefirot. And the Sefirot, as you know, you've heard this term many times, I'm sure. It's a, it's a term that's really shrouded in mystery. We don't really know what it is. We never really get a good definition. It sounds like the heavenly spheres. It sounds like numbers, but really the definition that most people will give you today is emanations, divine emanations, emanations from God's energy to the world. And it's like, it sounds like a different religion almost. It sounds like, um, you can leave the door open. It sounds like, you know, multiple gods. And it sounds crazy until you really start looking into what are these sefirot, what is their purpose, and what are they trying to teach us about some mystical experience. This whole class up till now, this is the ninth class in our series. So I'm glad you guys are joining just in time. Uh, it's perfect. But it's a, it's this class was supposed to be a discussion about the mystical experience. That's what I really tried to ch- uh, turn my gears towards. And we've discussed a lot of different elements of what mysticism is like and what the mystical experience is like. Is this the last one of the series? So this might be the last one, unless we want to continue. So I was going to open that up to you guys after. If we want to continue, I could keep teaching about Kabbalah, or maybe I was thinking possibly Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. So let's dive into it's. It's he's actually the you know the school named Heschel. He's a rabbi who is wow Baruch Haba. Unbelievable. I'm so glad I texted you. Baruch Haba. And he's a rabbi that, that is um, traditionally associated and affiliated with that school. Um, but he was an unbelievable rabbi, taught in JTS before it became conservative and just a really brilliant philosophical rabbi. But we'll, we'll discuss that next time, hopefully. Um, but this class is going to be dedicated to the Sefirot. So let's dive in. So what are the like Sefirot? The Unbelievable. Yeah, me too. I always feel like I'm in the nut house. Um, well, not because of you, because of me. Um, the Sefirot are known as the access codes. And I'll take out the book that, I, that I'm using for this. It's actually called Kabbalah, An Introduction to Jewish Mysticism by Byron Sherwin. Very good for beginners. You know, it really has uh, some good explanations. There are some pictures, which is really good for me. Um, and he starts off, he talks about the Sefirot, and it's in chapter four. Uh, the first place we hear about these Sefirot is in the Sefer Yetzirah, in this book from a very early Abraham time. Wrote. So they claim that Abraham wrote it. Scholars would surely disagree, but who knows? Who am I to say I wasn't there? You know, it was, it was like hundreds and hundreds or maybe thousands of years ago. No copyright. Exactly. It was no copyright. Um, so the Sefer Yetzirah has a very interesting statement. It says like this, Eser Sefirot Belima, 10 Sefirot, we don't know how to translate that yet, of Belima, of nothingness, which are unfathomable. Hmm. Uh, ma, oh, sorry, Eser Velo there's 10 and not 9, Velo Ahat and not 11. Contemplate with intelligence and think within contemplation. And it's very clear from the Sefer Yitzirah that there, God created the world with 32 things. It says primordially. What are these 32 things? The first 10 are the 10 digits, 0 to 9. The next 22 are the 22 level, uh, letters of the alphabet, of the Hebrew alphabet. And in some way, God used these to construct the world we know of. 
take everything you hear tonight with a grain of salt and try to maybe understand some of it symbolically and realize that a lot of it is, is like the, the finger pointing at the moon. If you stare too long at the finger, you forget to follow where the finger's pointing, which is the moon. So try to understand that these words are supposed to open you to a certain kind of experience and they're not necessarily, you know, literal uh, ideas. And I would say almost none of it is literal. So God is creating the world with these 10 uh, numbers and 22 letters. And uh, this authorship of this highly unique and highly influential text, which is the Sefer Yetzirah, has been attributed to no less, like you said, Leon, to Avraham Avinu and even Rabbi Akiva. So, you know, that's who it's been uh, ascribed to. But historically grounded accounts place it really between the 3rd and 9th centuries CE. Mike, I don't know if this is worth saying, but maybe it's like kind of dumb. But, you know, God did create the world with, it says, Vaidaber, you know, or, you know, and he said that let there be light. So he's, he's using the Hebrew language to, yes. to create yes. the world. I mean, he, and, and it's, he thinks in, and then he, and then things happen. So it's not purely figurative. It's literally how the Genesis is written is that the words and the thoughts, you know, of God uh, manifested the entire universe. Exactly. Anyway. But I think even, even that statement, like you're saying, is something that we need to delve into and meditate on to understand it fully. But yes, exactly. You're right. It's, it's hitting very much on what the Torah itself is saying, which is God used speech when he was creating the world, if you take it literally. And then how do we understand that, you know? So more historically grounded accounts put it between the third and ninth centuries with little to go on to narrow the possible uh, period of authorship. But it's possible that this was an oral text that was also expanded um, and had many different recensions. So that's the Sefer Yitzirah. Uh, we discussed the 32 wondrous pathways of wisdom. God used these different 32 things, the letters and numbers, to create the world. He had these sefarim, these books or names or three ways of pronouncing these consecutive letters. That's why a lot of these Kabbalists today will pronounce God's name and different combinations of letters to, to try to connect to God in different ways with writing sefer and counting sefar and speaking sipur, right? So you think about the word sefirot. It's an amazing shorish. Samach feresh. There's so many different words that could come out of that, right? You could have mispar, which means number, which was what we are most, uh, you know, specifically attributing this word to. You could talk about sipur, which means to tell, which is interesting because a bank, a bank teller is somebody who also is counting, but he's a teller. You had to, and to recount the story, right? And then you have the idea of sefer is a book uh, or a sofer. And then you have some people talking about sapir, which is like sapphire. And God has a sapphire brickwork under his feet, according to Sefer Shemot. Exactly. Very good. And uh, what is it? Parashat Kitisa? It's when... Exactly. That whole episode, which we discussed last time. Amazing. Right. And there's a lot of different things that you could, uh, you know, attribute this word to. And, uh, you know, without going into too much detail about the historical development of this idea of Sefirot, and you look at the Sefer HaBahir, which is a book from a few hundred years after that, and then Rabbi Haksagina Hor and around the year 1200 something, and then finally Rav Azriel of Gerona, all these people developed and further embellished the meaning of what Sefirot meant. Initially, it only meant this idea of digits, and then it became something much more. And that's what I want to discuss with you guys tonight is what did this 
stuff about Sefirot come to mean, and oh, I have a special gift for all of you. I almost forgot. I'm glad I remembered. Um, is these charts, uh, Dr. Nasser, you know, you, you made me realize last week how important this is. I have these charts uh, to show the Sefirot, and I'll pull, I'll, I'll pull them up for you guys as well. Um, and you have both, you know, so you guys, you guys can share some of these. But as you see, this chart has not only the sefirot on it, but it also has, the other one is the figure of the, the male body. Um, and both models are used to understand and decipher the meaning of these sefirot. So let's, let's delve in. You've all heard of the book called the Zohar, right? The Zohar emerges in medieval Spain, uh, a Spain that was gripped by a lot of tensions philosophically going on at the time, what was going on. There was all the school of Jewish philosophy, Maimonidean philosophy, that was reducing God to this very Aristotelian idea of a God who is really just thought thinking about itself, because thought and perfection and the unmoved mover and all this stuff, and it's such a distant God, and yet it's philosophically perfect, so that must be what God is. But it leaves humanity so distant and so far away that it really didn't resonate with a lot of traditional rabbinic Jewish people. Um, and there was a, a lot of debate going on at the time within Spain. Um, and this book, the Zohar, emerged in that context of a lot of this debate between the philosophers and more of the traditionalists. Um, and the Zohar was, you know, its authorship was traditionally ascribed to Rabbi Yohanan ben Zakai. Of course, and we, we spoke about him last week, some of these amazing stories about Maasim ben Kava, about uh, the understanding of God's chariot, whatever that means from the Gemara. And that's who it's ascribed to, one of the Tannaim. But sorry, he's, he's, a, he's a Tanna. Yeah, ben Zakai. Um, and then the 13th century Spanish Kabbalist Moshe de Leon, it, uh, according to modern scholars, he was either its author or its editor. So it's not really so clear what his role was, but it's very clear that a lot of parts of the Zohar could not have been from earlier because you could look at a lot of words that didn't exist prior to that period. Fine. Such so as some historical background. Now we're going to get into some interesting uh, terminology. So we talk about the Ensof. You've all heard of this term, the Ensof, the infinite, that which does not have a Sof. Ensof. It does not have an ending to it. So in it has a beginning. It has, ah, so, I mean, I, I never really thought of it that way. I would say no end and no beginning, just infinite. I think it's the best way of putting it, infinity. Um, and in Christian, uh, you know, philosophy, they had these terms, Deus absconditus and Deus revelatus, right? So what is to abscond? Very good. To abscond means to hide and to reveal. Beginning, the beginning would be an end. The beginning would be exactly. one end. So if there's no end, then there can be no beginning either. Exactly. You know? If you don't have one, you can't have the other. Exactly. So that makes sense. Um, so Deus Abscundatus is the end of. It's this God which is hidden, which we will never be able to understand. And any thought you could possibly have about this God, who is this end of, is not what it is. Because God is so far beyond your comprehension that you can never actually think about him. So that's really what Deus Abscunditus means, it's the Ensof. And Deus Revelatus, which is the God that is revealed to us that we can relate to, you might think of like Yodke Vavke, right? Because Yodke Vavke is the God that is imminent, the God that we have a relationship with as Am Yisrael. According to the Kabbalists, 
the Deus Revelatus, is the Sefirot. These Sefirot, these emanations of God, which they came to be known as after the whole thing with the numbers evolved, these Sefirot are the way that we can relate to God. And fundamentally, that's why it was so important that it emerged as a way for people to really feel closer to God and have a way of meditating on God. It's the essence of the divine versus how God is revealed to us, right? So God is revealed to us in a certain way. That is the sefirot. And the essence of God, like we're saying, is so far beyond our comprehension, we will never be able to relate to it. Um, and amazingly, the, they say that the end soft is so far beyond comprehension, so far beyond speech, it's never even explicitly mentioned in scripture. It's never mentioned explicitly in the Torah. We're going to talk about it soon. But when it says, Bereshit bara elokim, we're going to see the way that they explain that using the sefirot to show that the insof is hidden in there, but absent. And I'll, I'll tell you what that means very soon. Um, there's this idea of creatio ex nihilo. Anybody know what that means? Very good. Creating something from nothing. Yesh me'ayin, right? It's a very famous philosophical statement. Hanabam talks all about it. What is this insof? What is this? infinity of god's essence it must be ayin right because if everything we know about is yesh everything we know about is something that must be deus revelatus that must be the revealed side of god ah so if this is all yesh then what was before the yesh was the ayin and if we know that god is that insof from before the deus revelatus god is that deus absconditus God must be the ayin. God must be nothingness. And that's amazing to me. Because if you've been at some of the other classes, we've discussed how Eastern philosophy also talks about this. Buddhists are very famous for talking about the deepest level of reality is nothingness. All is nothingness. And they, they make these very uh, intriguing cryptic claims about reality, about nothingness. And you say to yourself, what could this possibly mean? And if you meditate for long enough and you gain enlightenment, apparently you understand this from an experiential uh, way that, that you see that, that this is real. And, and it's, you can't even speak about it because what does it mean for nothingness to be? Isn't, isn't it then something? So, of course, it defies speech. It's ineffable. But yet it's noetic. It's something that we experience as true when we have that kind of a mystical experience. So God is this ayin. Ensof is this no thing. It is this ayin. Any questions so far? I don't know. It looks to me like the Christians might have taken this to, to create like uh, their God is, is a Jesus. Could be. Could be. I mean, I'm not sure. I, this this is after Christianity. This is many years after Christianity. So oh, I don't think. Yeah. That's, I don't think. It, oh, so yeah. they didn't have. Exactly. Not, not, that I, not that I know. Of. Right. right. So the Sifirot. Yeah. Like the revealed side of God and the nothingness side of God live, like live as they do, they do in a way. So that's the thing. God's real reality, His oneness, is so you know that's beyond right. our comprehension, unfathomable, that it is this nothingness. And somehow there's this paradox. The deepest truths of mysticism are all paradoxes. So somehow God is able to reveal something from His infinity to our fin finitude. And it's, it defies understanding. And that's why we have the sefirot. So let's see what they mean. So we mentioned the root safar. We talked about telling, speaking, writing like a sofer, um, countings, 
right? So it could have a lot of different meanings. It's represented, these sefirot, could either, and I didn't give you a picture of this because I couldn't find one. I mean, I didn't really look, to be honest with you. Um, but they're represented as concentric circles, right? That they could be seen as emanations outward from the center. So from that nothingness comes everything outward. So yeah, please. Is made up of these 10 sefirot, or these are just like uh, bullet points? Good question. So Kabbalah literally means just tradition, but it was it came to mean the mystical tradition, and it, it developed, you know, slowly, slowly. It had Sefer Yitzirah, which talks about these Sefirot, but then the Sefirot became all of this stuff. So Sefirot, a central tenet to Kabbalah today is these Sefirot and how they work and how they relate to us. Okay, so it's, yeah. it's just a concept within Kabbalah. Exactly. Exactly, 100%. Good question. Yeah, please. Not literally, but in high school, I learned that separate Yitzhak is another name for separate Bereshit. So what's the separate mm. Yitzhak and where it comes from that? Interesting. It's another book written uh, from either the 3rd to ninth centuries. It's a lot, long span of time, but it's a book with like different Mishnayot in it, like maybe eight, nine chapters to it, discussing the way that God created the world in some mystical way. That's the best answer I could give you. Yeah, but it's very interesting. It's worth, I'm sure it's worth studying one day. Um, so now the sefirot are represented either as concentric circles or as a tree with the roots above, right? So you look here and you see this picture. You see here how the roots are above and the keter is the, the, the highest one. So if you look, over that, it's like a tree upside down because its roots are from the highest point from God in whatever way. So that's another model of it. You could talk about it as a chart with various paths connecting the sefirot to one another, and that's this first one. Or it could be the male body with crown affixed on its head, right, which is this picture. And we have that here for you guys. All right, so it's really interesting how many different ways there are of looking at these sefirot and understanding what they mean. And you might notice that there's a bunch of words written around them, so we'll get to that. But before we do, there are four major views and four major schools of thought about what are these sefirot really as we come to know them now, not just as numbers. So what are they? Sefirot are, according to the first school, sefirot are divine powers or divine attributes. They're literally parts of God in whatever paradoxical way, because we know God doesn't have parts. But from my perspective, they really are parts of God. Partake, they partake in divine essence in whatever way. They really are the divine essence. And they are the unfolding of the inner life of God, which is very hard for us to understand because we don't really know what that means without meditating. But hopefully this class and the other, the previous ones will drive you to meditate and drive you to be open-minded towards this kind of a mystical experience. Right? So it's the unfold, unfolding of the inner life of God. This is, that's the first school. So it's literally God's essence. Second school, the sefirot are not part of the divine essence itself, but are vessels of the divine influx, right? So you could think of them as God's, you know, essence is up there, and then it flows through the sefirot in whatever way, and they act as instruments of God's creating and sustaining the world. So God uses these sefirot to create the world and to sustain the world. Their actions and not the essence of God. Right, So they represent the way that God acts in the world, but they're not actually God's essence. And this is parallel to Haram Bam's view of attributes of action, which is interesting because 
Harambam would probably also agree with the Deus Absconditus, right? He would agree with the Ensof. That's what he views as God. The difference is that the Kabbalists want to have a way of, of relating to God, and that's why they introduced these Sefirot. So that's um, the second school of thought. Third school of thought, I think this one's really interesting. The Sefirot are, to them, divine emanations within created reality, right? They constitute the imminent element of divinity in the world. Imminence versus transcendence. We always talk about that. God is transcendent. Is God very far removed? God that's very hard to relate to. But God that's imminent is God is right here. He makes up the very fiber of everything in whatever way. God is in the sefirot, and the sefirot are in God. Has anybody ever heard of the term panentheism? So this view is the panentheistic view. It's different than pantheism. Pantheism teaches that everything is literally God. Panentheism is saying, no, really, things are hidden, but in a mystical, paradoxical way, the sefirot are, or really just reality, if you want to talk about sefirot, the sefirot are in God, and God is in the sefirot, or God is in everything, and everything is in God. And it's something to meditate on, it's something to experience, it's not really something you could think about with your intellectual mind. Um, so the sefirot are the trickle down of divine influx into the lower worlds. Right, so when God is trickling down his, his essence into these lower worlds, he does it through the sefirot. Um, and we, like we said, this is the really the panentheistic view. And finally, the, the last of the four models of what the sefirot means is that the sefirot represent psychological processes or human qualities. That's so interesting. Because really they're a reflection of what's going on inside my mind. But why is that so necessary in a discussion of God? Because unless you're there, who is there to know God? You know, I, we always, this is something we probably discuss like every single one of these nine classes. But you have to realize that in, in order for there to be an object, there needs to be a subject. In order for there to be a yin, there has to be a yang. There's such a deep truth. And we're going to keep coming back to that even in this class about you can't have one without the other. And so, you know, you might say how egotistical, how egotistical of these Kabbalists to take these human qualities and project them onto God. It's so obvious. It's just an ego projection. It's like, very good. The Torah itself does it. And yeah, otherwise you can't speak at all. So if you want to go your whole life without talking, because you know that your speech is limiting God, then by all means. But if you want to talk like me, and people get on my case because I talk a lot, but if you're like me and you want to talk, then let's indulge a little bit, because what else do we have to go on? Like Lao Tzu says in the Tao Te Ching, I have to say that now because people get on my case. But like Lao Tzu says, he who says it does not know, he who knows it does not say. And yet he wrote the whole Tao Te Ching. So that's really all you have to know, because at least know that what you're saying is not really the thing. And then once you start from that place of humility, you could start actually having a conversation or meditating on something that will hopefully act, you know, like when, when you shoot a rocket ship into, the, into space, eventually it, the, the payload kind of falls away. You've seen those videos amazingly, you know, and then the rest of the rocket shoots up. So hopefully your meditative practice will be like that, where you won't get addicted to the, the meditative model that you clung to, because whatever it is, is not reality. But hopefully it acts like this thing that propels you into whatever that deeper truth is, and that it falls away. So whatever you're using, don't get addicted to it. Don't take it too seriously. And finally, the fourth of the four models 
Sefirot represent psychological processes. Oh, we already said that. A human being is comprised of the same 10 attributes as God. So the intrinsic infinity between the divine and the human is because of this. Because God also has these sefirot somehow related to him. And we also have them. Hence, we have this connection between the divine and the human. This helps the mystic achieve mystical union with God. Somehow, because of this affinity, you're able to connect to God literally by aligning somehow your sefirot with the other, the upper sefirot, whatever that means. And the, the under, understanding oneself leads to understanding of God, like, right? Like Socrates sell, says, know thyself. So if Socrates said that, what does he mean? He could mean that in a lot of different ways, but from a mystical perspective, it could mean that when you understand yourself on these levels of the sefirot, it will lead you to understanding God. And we all know that the mystical spiritual journey doesn't come from doing things necessarily outwardly. Maybe that could be a result of it, but almost always it requires the inward journey, the psychological journey, the thing that you're learning within yourself that will lead you eventually to an understanding and an appreciation of God. So you have to start close in. You have to start inwardly in order for you to completely discover that you don't exist and that you are an illusion to go, to go Eastern on you. But once you understand that, then all there is is outwardness and love and connection to God. But you have to start close in. That's what I think. Um, Can I comment? Please, yeah, yeah. So I'm noticing here from all these Sefirot things that it avoids our senses, mm. hearing, smelling, taste, talking, our fingers, yeah. fingers aren't involved. And we have 10 fingers. Mm. But none of the senses are, are in the sefirot, looks like. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure how they relate to senses in particular, but I do and know. That's how we're supposed to understand yeah. and connect. But yeah, well, so I'll tell you one thing that I know is that. senses aren't even listed here. You're right. So some of the mystical teachings actually teach, and I'm not sure if this is Jewish per se. It might be from other mystical teachings. But they do teach that part of the meditation, welcome my friend Lewis, um, is part of the, the mystical experience is to get rid of all of these senses, to get rid of sight and hearing and smell, taste, touch, and to transcend all of those. So it could be that that's why it didn't want to stress those five physical sensations because you're supposed to kind of transcend them. But it is a good point. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. Um, all right, so... Uh, the sefirot are anthropomorphisms, right? So the, these sefirot are clearly projections of human qualities onto God, and yet they should act like a ladder to, towards God. Um, and sorry, sefirot are not anthropomorphisms. So you could say that they are, but you could also say that they're not. You could say human nature is a theomorphism that instead of saying, so when it says God has a hand, he really doesn't have a hand. Instead of that, you can say, your hand is the analogy. God literally has a hand, whatever that means. It's well beyond your comprehension, but everything is really theomorphic in the sense that God is the subject and you're the object and not vice versa. So it's so much of the mystical experience, so much of meditation on these mystical ideas is reversing the way you comprehend this stuff. So making everything go from egocentric to God-centric. So flipping the way that you exist and the way your consciousness is. And that's something we're supposed to be trying to cultivate through meditation is flipping it from being something where 
your dwelling as ego to dwelling as awareness. And that awareness is, in a sense, part of God. Um, humans are created in the image of God, in the image of the Sefirot. So when, according to the, the Mekubalim, when it says that God created Adam B'Tselmo, it really means it. It means it because the Sefirot are God's way of doing that. And that, that's pretty profound. And they have a lot of very interesting ways of reading the Torah through these new understandings and through these sefirot. So now, finally, we're going to get to the specifics of these 10 sefirot and see what we make of them. So have your, your charts ready in hand because it gets a little bit complicated, but I think it should be understandable. The first one is keter. You're going to notice that it's the only one that is not actually part of the body of the person. Right, it's just the crown. So this is the initial emanation out of Ensof. We said Ensof is the Deus Absconditus. It's this God that is incomprehensible. The first thing that comes out of the nothingness, the Ain, the unfathomable, is the Keter. And interestingly enough, Keter is also known as nothingness. Keter is also known as emptiness. So, the, but Keter also is this transition point from the Ansof to the rest of the Sefirot. And it has a very ambiguous, and I would say purposely ambiguous relationship with both, with both the Ansof above it and the rest of the Sefirot below it. Um, and that's why the crown is not part of the body proper, but it is worn as a symbol. Yes. Could you just mention the, uh, the Tzimtzum and how, how the, uh, the emanations start like... Uh you know, from the evacuation of, uh, uh, because I think it's somehow related to, to the beginning of the, the Sifirot or yes, that's somewhere so, else. So I was going to save that for Luriana. Later. Okay. Yes. But yeah, <laughs> hopefully we will get to that because it's a very important idea from the Arizal. So we will, we will definitely get to that. Remind me if I forget for sure. Um, so Keter is not part of the, the body itself but it still is a symbol and it has a relationship with it, right? And it's a symbol of the body's majesty. So there's this intentional ambiguity reflecting the mystery of the transition from the infinite to the finite. This is what everyone is grappling with. How can an infinite being like God, this Ensof, possibly relate to this finite world, to finite human beings? It doesn't seem fathomable, and that's the point. It's not. So when you meditate on this, hopefully you'll get to this Ketad place which will help you jump out into the end soft. Um, so this is a tremendous mystery. It's beyond human comprehension. It's identified with the divine attribute of will, right? So Retzon Hashem, when the Mekubalim hear about or think about Retzon Hashem, they're thinking about Keter. They're thinking about this infinite nothingness that's, uh, sorry, that, that's somehow an ambiguous transition from the Ensof to the rest of the Sefirot. And that corresponds to God's will. And why is that so interesting? Because if you know some of the debates among philosophers, there's a lot of debate as to, do I think first and then do an action and then decide to want to do the action? Or do I want to do something and then think about it and then do it? So does will precede intellect or not? Ah, amazing question. And yes, they are. And we're going to talk about that coming up. You break the light up through a prism and divide it up into yes. colors. Yep. Oh, amazing. Exactly. So that's the thing. Really, seven colors are the seven lower sefirot. We're going to correspond that to the Roy G. Biv. 
and also seven musical notes. So everything within nature corresponds to the seven lower ones. Amazing, and we're gonna to get to that. Fantastic, exactly. I feel like we have the world expert on, on that topic right here. It's amazing, it's really fantastic. I want to hear something from you next, Albert, about law. <laughs> um, Interesting. I never thought of it like that, but I'm sure there are. There probably is somebody who says that. Uh, I mean, if you want to look into it and get back to me, I don't want to give you any homework. But uh, feel if, if it does, if that is true, that's very profound. So very good. Um, so this this whole debate as to whether or not intellect precedes will. Well, the Kabbalists say will is definitely before intellect, and somehow God's will. Uh, wanted him to go from this infinite aloneness, which where he was self-contained, to now being in relationship with all these finite beings in some way that we really don't understand. Um, this ket that is hidden, it's remote, it's ayin, it's nothingness. It's the root of the tree that is the sefirot. It's the primary root of all reality, right? So like, like we said, one of the models has it as the upside down tree. So the, without the keter, you don't have the root leading to everything else. And the Mikubalim the, the say something very interesting. I think it's in the Zohar. Within keter are the engravings or code of all things that are to be. The potential for all the sefirot, almost like the DNA of the rest of the sefirot are contained within the keter. And unless you have the keter, you don't have the potentiality for everything else. Um, and... Will is present in Keter and not in Ensof. So if you're looking for what is the difference that you could point to between the Ensof and Keter, it's God's will. God's will exists at the stage of Keter, but not at the stage of Ensof. Um, and we can only want, know one thing and one thing only that the Ensof did. What did the Ensof do? It made engravings in the supernal purity, which of course we know is the Keter. So somehow... The Ensof did this thing, which is, again, beyond our comprehension, unless he meditated on it for long enough. The, the Ensof engraved into Keter the supernal purity and the rest of the creation and existence that it wanted to bring about. So, right, so that's what the Ensof did. And if you look now, we're going to see the first emanation off of Keter is, to the right of it, is Chokhmah. So Chokhmah is the second emanation. It's the second sefirah. What does Chokhmah literally mean? It says there, it means wisdom. Wisdom, and it could be parallel possibly to the philosopher's idea of thought thinking of itself. Right. So now maybe this is where Hanambam would be more into everything, where with the Aristotelian god of thinking and thought and intellect. But really, in reality... He wouldn't relate necessarily so much to the the Ensof and the Keter per se. He, I'm sure he would agree with infinity and who knows, you know, but he liked to stress more this intellectual element of God. Chokhmah also corresponds to the brain of, of God, whatever that means, or the brain of the human, really the brain of the human being that relates to God's brain, whatever that means. I know, you know, forgive me for not knowing how to explain this stuff. Um, Chokhmah is also known as Yesh. Isn't that interesting? Because we said Ensof and Keter are the nothingness. They're the Ayin. So what is Chokhmah? Chokhmah is Yesh. 
Chokmah is the yesh me'ayin. So when they read about creation, ex nilo, they say, ah, it just means that Chokmah came from Keter. That's really what it's trying to say. The Sefirah of Chokmah came from the Sefirah of Keter. So this is the divine personality unfolding from within itself. That's what it means, yesh me'ayin, Chokmah from Keter, is God's essence is unfolding within itself. Um, and they get this from a beautiful pasuk from Tehillim, Me'ain Yimatzeh, which means from where shall wisdom be found? But if you say it, and not as a question, but rather, Me'ain Yimatzeh, from Ain comes Chokmah, from Ain comes the Yesh of Chokmah. Chokmah is referred to as a point that emanates out of Keter, from which everything emerges. And this is incredible, Dr. Nasser, like you pointed out to me once, when you were studying this stuff, it really seems to be very much similar to the singularity that we know about from the Big Bang, right? And, and even the wording, apparently, Dr. Nasser, you can speak to this, but the wording of the Zohar itself is very reminiscent to the 21st century reader when it talks about Chokhmah as this seed of all things that contains the potentiality of everything that's to come, this male element of the Sefirot at this point, where it's the seed that's going to lead to everything else, and it's the first male emanation, it's very reminiscent of the singularity that will eventually expand into everything else. And it's also known, Chokhmah, as the father or upper father that will inseminate the upper mother and have children. So there's going to be, a, I'm just warning you guys, you know, trigger warning, there's going to be a lot of sexual imagery here regarding the Sefirot. So the male emanation here of Chokhmah is going to inseminate Bina. It's going to have relations with Bina. And through that relationship, it's going to give birth to the lower seven Sefirot. Right? And, we, and, and to me, that's amazing because it's, it's really all about relationship. It's a beautiful drama going on within the Sefirot. All right, so Chokhmah is this male emanation. It, it inseminates Bina. What's Bina? Understanding. It's further unfolding of the divine intellect. So, right, these are the upper three triad of Ket, and Chokhmah, and Bina. Those are all about God's intellect. Um, Bina is this intuitive understanding and intuitive knowledge of what we know. It's the head that houses the brain, right? So, Chokhmah is like the brain, and Kete and Bina is like the housing place for it. And why is that so interesting? Because we, we, we learn of a story in the Zohar. And what's the story? Um, Chokhmah builds a palace, and inside this palace, or in this palace, suddenly becomes transfigured into a womb. And Chokhmah implants his seed in this womb that used to be a palace. And Bina is both the palace and the womb. And it's also known as the supernal mother. So Chokhmah is the supernal father. Bina is the supernal mother that are in this beautiful sexual dance that is going to lead to the birth of the rest of these sefirot. Yes, please. What's a, how do you define the difference between Chokhmah and Bina? So Chokhmah is more of a, a, the initial way of thinking about something. It's the first thought about something. So, oh, I have an idea. It's the light bulb that's springing to life. Bina is more of the receptacle of that. It's like, let me try to delve into this. Let me mull it over. Let me digest it. It's like using what you 
know if we'll apply to your current solution. Very good. Exactly. Very that's very much the way the Hakamim use it 100%. And then the Bina, I think, is fleshing it out and then bringing it into reality and bringing it into practicality. So you have some people. Why do you think the, the male is associated with the Chokhmah and the female with the Bina? It's a great question. I mean, I have to be very careful, very careful, because who knows who's listening to this stuff. So please, God, do not take sound bites from this in 20 years from now and ruin my career. Um, but I think, I think, this is, I, have to say, I say this literally every class for some or other reason, but I think that classically, and maybe today you might see it from your own anecdotal experiences, but men might be symbolic of or have a lot of these, you know, energetic ideas, you know, entrepreneurial uh, upstarting thing. And not that women don't have that. Women do have that. But women are classically associated with a certain type of intuition and a certain type of understanding and being the receptacle of an idea and the receptacle of something to bring it into reality. And of course, that's very parallel to bringing a baby into reality. And that's, you know, to me, very, very profound. But I think, yeah, just the way that women relate to thinking and the way that men relate to thinking, maybe classically they understood it in this way. I'm I not. Have, I, have, I have a better answer. Okay. When you, when you, if you're going to use an analogy of, of pregnancy and giving birth, the male, it's one second. The female, mm-hmm. you got to deal with the thing for nine months. You got to nurture it. You got to feed it. You got to give birth to it. A little, a little deeper of a dive. 100%. No, I think that's that's spot on. I think uh, I think that's what's reflected in it. But I'm saying, even just from the level of an idea and how the idea is received, you could think of it as like, oh, the husband comes home, he has an idea and the wife is there to support him. Classically, I'm not saying this is the way things should be. I'm not. It just might, yeah, may have happened. Not, many not times. Eat so well, but yeah. Yes, yes, please, my lawyer. Ah, uh, yes, he does. Whoever's listening to this, search, search for Rabbi Akiva. If that saves me, and then and he great. Talks about the Zahar, and yep. And what they represent, and it's it's very similar to what you're saying. Very much so. I've listened to a lot of my brother-in-law loves him, and I've I've read a lot of his a few of his books years ago, so I really forgot them, but very good stuff. I remember liking them a lot, so I gotta reread them. World Mask, and then that kind of really good stuff. Um, yes, please. Ah, unbelievable. Wow, that's real Hokmah right there, where you take something I thought in a previous <laughs> class and you bring it into this. I would love to say more. I want to hear. So you're saying the rider is like Hokmah, maybe, no, or the opposite? The, the, elephant, the elephant is Hokmah. The elephant is Hokmah. Right. And that's, Bina. That's, that's, your, that's your gut Ah, uh, the first gut. Ah, that's amazing. It's the first reactions to something. And then the writer is like, okay, now how do we deal with this? Right. And how do we mix it around? Okay, I, I, I love that. I think that's fantastic. Part of the human you know, thought process involves intuition and then conscious understanding. And it could be very much that. The issue is that they talk about Bina as the intuition, but I guess you know, it, could, it could be open to interpretation and different definitions, but that's perfect. I think that's really good. I really like that. Um, I mean, my initial thought on this yeah. was, I mean, the difference between understanding and, and wisdom. Um, if you take a class, you get trained in something, right? That's your understanding. You understand the, the, the topic, understand how how everything is working. Wisdom, mm-hmm. you've been doing it for 15 or 20 mm-hmm. years. Yeah. So you, know, you know, when things go wrong, how yes. to, uh, 
how to fix it yeah because and and when you develop that you don't even really have to think subconsciously you just kind of think it perfect i love that um so another name for bina it makes sense is makor is the source and origin of all life and uh you know it's understandable why that is and and how it brings about the rest of the sifirot and they they take this pasuk that we read on saturday afternoon as part of tehillim right hallelujah and then the sheet Yirat Adonai. We know that Pasuk. So when they see the word Reshit ah, there's a juxtaposition between Reshit and Chokmah, and they say, okay, therefore Reshit must be Chokmah. So now, where, what's the most famous place where we hear about Reshit? Bereshit, right? So you take it back, you say, okay, what does Bereshit mean? If Chokmah is Reshit, and by the way, they say Bina is Elohim for whatever reason the Zohar gives. Now, when we see Bereshit bara Elohim, what does it mean? Bereshit with Chokmah, blank created Bina, right? Bara Elohim, because Elohim is Bina. So God goes from being the subject to the object. So Chokmah, so with Chokmah, Bereshit, blank created Elohim or Bina. And that's crazy because it's like, what is this blank going on here? Can anybody guess? The blank is the end self. The blank is that which cannot have never even be spoken about. It's that which transcends any way of conceiving and writing about and even revealing in the text itself of the Torah. And that, I think that's so profound, the way that they're able to marry all of these philosophical concepts, or so really all these mystical concepts, into the text of the Torah so beautifully with such a profound message that it's missing purposely, the end self. So Chokhmah is the means by which the end self created Bina and inseminated Bina. And the emanation of the Sefirot precedes the creation of the known universe, right? So before God could really create Shamaim Va'aretz, he needed to emanate out his Sefirot. And then the Sefirot were able to connect with the finite Shamaim Va'aretz that we know of. Now, continuing along our path, any questions so far? Yeah. That there's a purpose for the world. Some, some. Ah, very good. Some end, you know, whatever it is, where we're going, I don't know. Absolutely, it's very empowering to the human being. Created from Chokmah, mm -hmm. then there's some. Hundred percent. We're we're definitely gonna we're gonna discuss that. Um. So just for for matter of time, I'll I'll just continue to we'll get through all the sefirot. Um. Hesed is the next one. Hesed is the first of the lower seven sefirot. It's the right arm, whatever that means. Divine love or mercy, gedullah, also known as it's male. It's also identified with Avraham Avinu. And it has a lot to do with freedom and flow, right? Chokhmah and, sorry, Hesed and mercy and rahamim. So it's all about Hesed. Everything is running on its own. Everything is flowing. Everything is energetic. That's what, what, what Hesed really represents. So it's unbounded energy and potential manifesting itself. Deen, on the other hand, or Gevura, is judgment. It's limitation, finitude, restriction. The left arm, it's the female. It's what determines, okay, you had this potentiality of the semen. It's going to become this very concrete child. It's limited to that. And it's also identified with Yitzhak Avinu. And you could read that in whatever way you want into the Torah. So that's, that's Hesed and Gevura. 
And that's really beautiful because we're sensing now attention. We even read on Rosh Hashanah, God, please stand up from the Kiseh Hadin and go sit on Kiseh Hamim. That's basically, I think the Kabbalists will say, go from Bina to Chochma. Sorry, go from Givura to Chesed. You know, enough with, with too much of the Deen. Give us more of the free-flowing free Rahamim. So I think that's really beautiful. And now we're going to introduce Tiferet. Tiferet is that center one. It's glory. It's shalom that brings stability between this tension that, that we are seeing between limitation and freedom, between Bina and, sorry, between Givura and Chesed. I got to cover this. Between Givura and Chesed. It's the torso Tiferet. It's the body of the Sefirot. It's the center of the body. It's also Yaakov Avinu is the one that corresponds to it. Yeah, please. If Tiferet is associated with Kitashim and Rahamim, Rahum, was, was that not the womb? Because it's like, when they talk about mm. compassion, they use the word womb with it. Yeah, I don't really like this, uh, these, the, this chart so much for all of the words. I think Chesed is more related to, to Rahamim, if anything. And like we're saying, because Rahamim is all about that unbounded, free-flowing energy and potentiality, as opposed to, and Givura is the limitation of it. So there are parallels, like you're saying, between Chokhmah and Hesed and Bina and Givura, but one is more of a spiritual thing and one is more of a physical-related thing. But that's very good that you picked up on that. Very good. Um, so Tiferet is maintaining the fundamental balance between mercy and justice, between Givura and Hesed, sorry, Hesed and Givura. Um, it's preventing anarchy on the one hand, which is too much hesed is anarchy, right? We know that the Torah says hesed who, if a brother and a sister would sleep together, that's hesed. And such a strange word because that's too much unbounded love. We don't want that. That's too much. You need some givura there. You need some din. You need some limitation on that, right? So it's maintaining the fundamental balance between mercy and justice. It's preventing anarchy and harsh judgments, right? On the one hand, anarchy, the other hand, harsh judgments. So now we have a new derasha of the word bereshit. Barashit. What does sheet mean? It means six in Aramaic. So it means Bina gave birth to six children. Now, what the heck does that mean? I thought there are seven lower emanations. Well, the, the Zohar tells us another story. Initially, Tiferet was born hermaphroditically. It was, had both male and female genitalia. Um, and it was separated later on into the male Tiferet that we know of. And the female Malchut on the bottom, also known as Shekhinah, which is the 10th Sefirah. So they used to be back to back, like Siamese twins. And this should remind you of the Midrash about Abraham, Adam and Hava, very good. And then once they separate and turn face to face, they can now rejoin and have intimate sexual relations with each other and bring about this love. So Tiferet and Malchut are compared to heaven and earth, sun and moon. The written Torah and the oral Torah, the lower father and the lower mother, because we already have the upper and uh, father and mother, king and queen, bridegroom and bride, Hakadosh Baruch Hu and Shekhinah. Wow, Baruch Haba, better late than never, Sammy. <laughs> Amazing. No, don't worry about it. Right? So, uh, Tiferet and Shekhinah have this very intimate relationship. And what we're going to see is the Kabbalists have this idea of theurgy which is the ability to influence the sefirot and influence the divine realms. And by doing mitzvot and doing good things and perfecting yourself, you're turning tiferet and shekhinah towards each other. And you're allowing for the divine influx of energy to our world 
through the relationship between Tiferet and Shekhinah. Um, so now, like that, we mentioned Shekhinah or Malchut. We'll, we'll say another thing about it. It's also compared to David and Rachel Imenu. Um, it's known as Keneset Israel, also, which means the the way that God talks about His bridegroom Israel. Um, it's like a mirror that reflects all that is above her, the Shekhinah. Right? It's the closest Sefirah to human realm. So when you pray and you're you're really feeling into it, the Kabbalists will say you're feeling the Shekhinah. You're feeling God's presence because it's the most imminent one of all the sefirot. Next, we'll say netzah. Netzah is like eternity, victory, something that is everlasting. It's compared to Moshe Rabbeinu, and it's a source of prophecy, just like Hod is, which is the, the, the left one. Um, and it's compared to either the right leg or the right kidney or testicle. And then you have Hod on the left, which is the eighth, of the ten sefirot, it's its majesty. It's compared to Aharon. So Moshe and Aharon, you have here the right and left legs, stability here, um, eternity and majesty. Both are sources of prophecy, and they're compared to the legs. And finally, you have Yesod, which is compared to the phallus, and it's the foundation. We know the famous pasuk, Sadiq Yesod Olam, that the Sadiq is the foundation of the world. And we know the Hachamim always say, who is the Sadiq? Yosef a Sadiq. So they compare Yosef to Yesod, and it's not a coincidence, I don't think, that Yosef was the one who struggled with not giving in to, to sexual temptation, and that's why he probably merits this Sefirah. So we'll close off with just three uh, major points. The first one is, what is the relationship now that we talked about all this stuff between the Ensof and the Sefirot? Are the sefirot part of the divine essence, or are they not? So the sefirot, like you mentioned, Vic, are actually identified with the different colors. So what the Mekubalim would do is they would meditate on the different colors and the combinations of colors. right? And the seven lower ones are corresponding to the seven colors of the spectrum, um, and maybe even the seven musical notes. So there's different ways of meditating on this and combining the colors. Um, and they're also compared to vessels of different colors. So the divine essence is like this clear fluid or light that's flowing into these vessels, and it appears to take on these colors. Does the divine essence change? No, but it appears from our perspective because it's illuminating the vessel that it took on this color, but it itself did really not change. And it's known as Hashefa HaElohi, the divine influence compared to light, seed, water, and it's an optical illusion of color because the divine essence really is taking on the color of the vessel. The ensof or keter does not actually change when it flows, but it appears different based on the vessel that's housing it, right? So the ensof appears to change when it is housed by different vessels. It's all about my perception as a human being, where everything is from the perspective of the recipient, says the Zohar. God remains unchanged fundamentally. And you could say that the ensof is like the soul and the sefirot are like the limbs of the body that it's uh, giving rise to. Um, second to last point here now. What is the relationship between chokhmah and binah and tif'eret and shekhinah? We discussed all this idea of sexual energy going on between the sefirot. The creation of the sefirot is compared to the creation of the world, right? So in order for God to create the world, he had to create the sefirot in this way. Adam and Hava, like we mentioned, were separated and then joined together. That's paralleled by Tiferet and Shekhinah being together and then separated to join together again. 
there's this ongoing process of relationship. It's not something that happened primordially, primordially only. So now we're going to get into the it's interesting idea of what is time. Time really, if it really is an illusion, which seems to be the case according to modern physics, in every moment, these sefirot are manifesting this relationship. And they're copulating and cohabitating and creating this moment repeatedly. So when we say, it really means in every moment, God is creating and recreating and recreating Bereshit. Because time is something that you think is a real firm reality because you're a human being. But in reality, time is now. Always now. It's an unbelievable thing. Um, Shabbat have to fit in. Ah, beautiful. So I think Shabbat is supposed to be supposed to be a little taste of fully living in the now because you're not caught up in the vicissitudes of daily life. You're able to meditate and connect to uh, this deep idea of the creation that's happening in every moment. You could be your most mindful when you're not so busy. That's the way I think about it. Um, So human intercourse and the, on the physical level, is actually said to create the child. Once the child is created, it causes the divine intercourse between Tiferet and Shekhinah, and then that creates the soul, which goes into the child. So it's really beautiful, I think. You, you know, if, we're, if you don't have a 21st century perspective on this stuff, and you take it as this beautiful, loving relationship between all this stuff, it really makes a lot of profound beauty to it. Um, so really are a piece of God. Say it again. We really are. We really are. That's exactly what we've been saying. And it's, it's something to meditate on and experience rather than just think about. And the sefirot are supposed to be the, the guide and the access codes to how to experience this. So it's really a gift that they gave this to us. Um, and like we always know, the mystical experience is ultimately ecstatic. And we mentioned last week, ecstasis means standing outside. But we also know ecstasy means this thing that feels really good. So just like the climax of the sexual experience is this thing that feels unbelievable. It's like ego death. It's like joining with infinity. So too, that's what these sefirot are trying to say is that everything is ultimately in its deepest reality ecstatic. And when you're having a mystical experience, you can peer through the illusion of everything and you can realize everything is just in ecstasy all the time. Everything, all these molecules and all the energies that are you know, vibrating through everything. It's just in a beautiful divine dance. Everything is vibrating together. Everything, if you believe in string theory, it's all vibing together. And it's all creating this beautiful divine symphony, which is ecstatic. And when you meditate and have a mystical experience, the best thing we know how to relate it to is the climax of sex. All right, and the influx down to Tef'eret through Yesod, which is the phallus, into the pool of Shekhinah, and that's how the divine influx comes to the world. The Shekhinah changes from being male, sorry, sorry, from being female to male, right? When it's accepting the energy from above, it's female. And then when it's transmitting the energy downward into our world, it becomes male and it changes colors. It's the only one of the Sefirot that changes and it changes colors from green to becoming red and white. After it gives birth, it becomes red and white. Before, while it's still ripe, is while it's still not ripe, it's green. Um, and the way, like a tomato, beautiful, very good, exactly. You want to learn about God, learn about the tomato. <laughs> Amazing. You want the deepest philosophical, it's really true, man. Um, 
And, and th this is where the Kabbalists insert their idea of theurgy. So theosophy means understanding the inner life of God. And that's what the Sifi will help you do. But beyond that is theurgy, which is changing something about the divine realm. And the way to do that is through good deeds, is through mitzvot, is through meditation and whatever way. And the way to do that is going through Shekhinah and by having Tef'eret have this relationship with Shekhinah. And unfortunately, if you do the flip side, if you do evil things, they, they call it the Sitra Ahra, the other side of things. It's kind of like the Hulk, you know, the other guy. And it's like something bad is going to happen and the demonic, you know, uh, evil spirits will influence the Tef'eret and Shekhinah. And instead of being turned towards each other, they're turned away from each other. And hence, we have a lack of the flow of God's divine yeah, influx. Very, it sounds a lot like the Kidubim. That's very, it's very beautiful. Or it sounds, if you ever, ever like, I quote this like every week, the chakras in Avatar The Last Airbender, if you don't clear the stream of the weeds, it's not going to flow. And it's the same thing with your deeds, apparently. Finally, we have Lurianic Kabbalah. Um, and this was what Dr. Nasser was asking about. The idea of simsum, they say that when God created the world, if God is this ensof, he's this infinite being, how could there be room for anything finite? Well, he, he went into exile. Part of himself went into exile and subtracted from itself, and that's called simsum. It created this vacuum within the nothingness, and who knows what this means? How could you have nothingness within nothingness? I have no clue. It's not something to understand. It's something to experience. Um, and what happened was God created these sefirot into this pocket. And when he was letting out his divine influx into these kelim, into these instruments and vessels of the sefirot, something very catastrophic happened. It's called shevirata kelim. The, the vessels broke and shattered. And why, you might ask, why did this happen? Why did God's creative energy do this? Because one of the deepest truths of the mystical is the yin and the yang. That in order to have creativity, you have to have destruction. In order to have pleasure, you have to have pain. In order to have plus 10, you have to have minus 10. So you can't have one without the other. You can't have happiness without sadness. You can't have any of it without its opposite, equal and opposite. So the Shevirata Kelim, I think, represents that fundamental to reality is destruction. So that's why the Buddhists say life is suffering. Because the fundamental ingredient to having life is the dying out of everything. But the thing to transcend is if you notice impermanence all the time, if you notice change all the time, you can step out. And that's nirvana. That's the nirvana literally means the breath out. It's like, phew, wow, I really got caught up in that one. I really thought I was Michael Franco all this time. <laughs> and now finally I step out and I realize like, that's all. I'm just part of this whole dance. I'm just one very small piece in the whole divine symphony that's going on. And, and, and really through understanding the yin and the yang of it, you come to accept that because life is suffering, now you're not clinging to the pleasure and you're not pushing away the pain because you know it's all going to happen. You just let it flow. And you stop identifying with the changing nature of everything. You, you start identifying with that which transcends it. Um, and they talk about once the Shevirat HaKelim happened, now we have this beautiful drama going on. The Nitzotzot, the, the divine sparks, are now entrapped in everything in our world. And they're entrapped in, in what's called Kelipot, in these little externalities, if you will, these little shells 
And everything in reality is a kilipa with an itzot in it. And the only reason that it manifests as it does is because the nitzot gives life to the kilipa to manifest as it does. And this is really the essence of panentheism. This is what it means that God's spark is in everything and everything is in God's spark. This is God is in everything and everything is in God. That's really what this Shevirat HaKelim is meaning. Um, and it's all sustained because of the presence of these sparks. And this is very empowering, like you said, Leon, to the human being. Why? Because now human beings have a mission. Now we have a job. So if you're this kind of person that needs a storyline and you need to have something, which we all do, then you buy into it and you, you fight and you say, okay, I have to make sure that the world is, is inside of me that's happening. I have to make sure everything is aligned. So on the one hand, there's this crazy story and everything matters so much. But on the other hand, it's not that important. It's not, you know, right now is also perfect. And right now you can step out and just notice the, the, the drama that's happening. And when you notice the drama that's happening and you're able to step out, that's really this ecstatic, ecstasis, nirvana experience. And I'll just say one thing, which is that, I mean, I'll say a lot of things at this point, but it's amazing to me how parallel a lot of this drama is to the Hindus and what, and what a lot of these Eastern philosophies will say, which is that God in creating the world is playing hide and seek with himself. So the same idea of the simtsum, removing himself, that's what the Hindus would call hiding from himself. And then you becoming enlightened is found. So it's hide and seek. And God is seeking himself and God is in search of man, like Abraham Joshua Heschel would say. And your job as a human being, quote unquote, and don't take it too seriously and be, be compassionate to yourself, and, but is to become enlightened in a way. And, and, you know, one of the most profound things I've ever experienced was meditating and thinking about my job as a psychiatrist, which is hopefully to help infinity find itself, which is to help a human being who is so caught up in their story and their ego, realize that they're not that ego, realize that they are actually continuous with the flow of infinity. And there, there can be no greater privilege than experiencing that yourself and helping another person experience. And you don't have to be a psychiatrist to do it. It could happen from a smile. It could happen from a good deed. It could happen from anything you do. And from it really starts inside. The best thing you can do for the world right now is fix yourself internally. And then from there, all the beauty and all the goodness and all the love will flow. And I think that's what's so profound about this stuff is that it gives you a guideline and a storyline, just like the Hindu myth of God playing hide and seek and lost and found. It gives you an, an epic and it gives you a drama to relate to. So thank you for attending these nine classes. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this. I certainly have to say these have been some of the most enjoyable experiences of my entire life to talk about this stuff. Some of my friends tell me to shut up because I can't stop talking about this stuff. You guys are my outlet. You guys are the people that I love to connect to about this stuff. And to me, there's no greater privilege than to talk about this stuff and hopefully one day experience it together. Maybe we'll start a meditation group or something. If, or if anybody wants to bring in some uh, illicit substances, don't tell me about it. Maybe I'll tell you, slip it into my water bottle next week. All right. Any questions? Any comments? No, just uh, when you said you can't have happiness without sadness. Yeah. Um, it's kind of disheartening, no? It is disheartening. There's a possibility for sadness. It's definitely not 
uh, not something that we we love to think about. We search for happiness all the time. Yes, that's right. And you, the funny thing is, you you realize you can't pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. You can't transcend your ego using your ego. So the only thing to do is notice that there is nothing you can do and fully let go. And only once you fully let go and realize I have no choice but to cling and have aversion. Once you fully accept that that's your nature, you stop identifying with the clinging and aversion. But it's only it's it's ironic because in order to transcend it, you have to completely let go of control, and then you get all the control, and then you get all this unbelievable experience of being God. Shefa, Shefa, that's exactly right. And Clay, you know, I I hope that. In these nine classes, you've heard the most ridiculous things you've ever heard. I hope that in these nine classes, you can quote me and say, Michael's crazy because he said this and this and that. And I hope and I bless you that one day you'll be able to delve deeper into these things and experience them in some capacity in a mystical experience. And that these should be tools for you and Bezat Hashem for, for many people to unlock certain kinds of experiences because that's the point of them. So thank you, everybody, for coming. Hazak Dr. Nasser, thank you for attending. As always, Saul, thank you. Thank you, thank Michael. you. Well discussed, Doc. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a lot to take in in one uh, one session. You know, it's like, yeah, it's hard. Oh, by the way, a lot, a lot of these people think you're a celebrity. They just want to see what you look like. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. You're very nice. Like, you're like you're, you're the superstar of this class. So I, I wish uh, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll, we'll post a picture of you on the uh, on the podcast website because you're such a profound voice in the classes. They want to. They probably want to see. You. Thank, thank you very you, much. Doc. We'll I try. All right. Yeah, we'll keep doing it. More classes, more Amen. learning. So yeah, let I me know it. if you guys want to keep doing this. The, the fellowship ends today, but I'm open to continuing this class series. In person, on Zoom, whatever you guys want to do. Um, but yeah, let me know. I'm in. Good night, everyone. Thank you. Laila Tov.